Hello, my name is Matt Summerall. Today we're putting on the gloves and taking up the fight against cyber criminals. We're talking MDR, Managed Detection and Response. And we'll get the very latest intel on what your company should be doing to protect itself. And we'll discover a couple of outstanding products that can give you an advantage in the war against hackers. We have experts from Rapid7 and The Missing Link standing by to explain what MDR is and how you can implement it into your business. And we'll also discuss the latest developments in threat intelligence and vulnerability management. Let's get to our experts. First up from Rapid7, Richard Stocks. Richard is a threat intelligence specialist. Uh, what do you actually do, Richard? Yeah, hey, Matt. Basically, my role is to work with the Rapid7 account teams and our partners, such as The Missing Link, and through them to ensure that our customers get the outcome they need from our threat intelligence services. Okay. And also from Rapid7, Gavin Ray, Senior Security Solutions Engineer. G'day, Gav. Tell us about your role there at Rapid7. Hi, Matt. Good to be here. I'm a pre-sales security solutions engineer, so I work with our account executives, working with our, our customers and clients and uh, presenting to them Rapid7 solutions. So we take their requirements, we're looking at the best fit and, uh, and then conducting demonstrations, proof of concepts, trials, etc. And from The Missing Link, Pete Livingston, security specialist. What's an average day at The Missing Link look like for you, Pete? Thanks, Matt. The average day uh, changes moment to moment, mainly because as a security specialist, you're the first point of contact at the missing link for our clients. Our clients can engage us for security testing or security defences, deployment, building, um, or product selection as well. So it's a lot of variety as day to day. Okay. And we'll get to some of those products a little later on in the podcast. We'll also dive into our discussion on MDR in a moment, but I just want to start by asking our experts where you think we're at with cyber attacks. I mean, is it fair to say that right now we're at a critical and I guess historical moment where cyber criminals are gaining an advantage? What are your thoughts on that, Gaff? I think it's a mixed landscape. Organisations are becoming more mature. Obviously, what we're seeing in the news recently as well with um, organisations not being prepared and not investing in the right ways or having the right governance across the top of that to protect the organisations. So I think it's it's developing maturity. Certainly, the attacks are increasing. The sophistication around those attacks are increasing, and that's the, hence the need for advanced solutions like you know MDR solutions or vulnerability management or threat intelligence being used by organisations to stay ahead of that. And ransomware is still one of the major issues, isn't it? And people can download this on the dark web. It's like ransomware as a service. That's exactly right, Matt. So ransomware as a service is quite common on the dark web. Um, These cyber criminal groups, rather than attempting to break into an organisation, having to do the entire attack chain themselves and maybe it not paying off, they instead just develop the ransomware and sell it out for other people to do it. Therefore, it's now an attack at scale. Another thing there, Matt, too, is a lot of these attacks are being launched from offshore. Uh, there's no particular thing that says you know, an attack has to be confined to a particular geography or come from a particular geography. Most of this is quite opportunistic. There's a very complex background industry, to Pete's point, around ransomware as a service and the people doing the attacking, not necessarily the people with the smarts. So it's quite common for someone who's known as an initial access broker to sell credentials or a way into an organization, somebody will buy that and then they will come along and deploy ransomware that they've hired from somewhere else. Right. It's not just someone decides to attack you. It's There's actually a whole chain behind the scenes. You will see some cases where specific organizations are targeted because of what they do. They might handle a lot of money or be particularly vulnerable in some way. And, and they're a prime target, right? Because people are after money. But a lot of it is also opportunistic where people will just look for a particular vulnerability 
I'm sure we've all received phishing emails or SMSs saying you've got an unpaid toll invoice. Very opportunistic attacks, but they can be quite profitable. What we're seeing with these attacks, you know, we've made a really good point that the attack itself is is more decentralised. There's many different parties coming together and making it happen. Therefore, it's getting more efficient. Uh, threat actors are getting better and better at what they're good at, and then they're working together in gangs and making successful attacks happen. Accelerating that is the acceleration in AI that we're seeing in all forms of the economy uh, and especially the technology industry. So if we can write essays a lot faster using AI, you can also write malware a lot faster using AI. So the scale of these attacks is already increasing by the fact that it's now decentralized and you've got a lot of different organizations working together, but that's only going to be increased further by the fact that they can now incorporate AI into malware development and script writing. I think the interesting thing is how they get into your organization and they can roam around in there for quite a long period of time, can't they? Yeah, living off the land, so to speak. They've managed to get some sort of initial penetration into an organization. They're then looking to see what exists in the real estate of what's available to them, how they can then you know, laterally move within the organization, uh, hopefully staying undetected for as long as possible and not firing off alarms and alerts in the organization, which will bring focus to them. It's you know not uncommon that when somebody actually does notice an incident and they move to an incident response scenario, when you start digging in, it's not uncommon to see that they've been there for six months, seven months, eight months, just quietly creeping around and, and slowly exfiltrating data. And you know, there's, there's logical reasons why they operate in that way. It's um, a very common early detection method was to look for large transfers of data being pumped out of the organization. Now, that's quite easy to do from a technology perspective. So, of course, the attackers change their behavior to slowly leak data out over time so it goes unnoticed. You know, then by the time you do notice, terabytes of information of sitting out in someone else's control. One of the first big events was that Sony breach a few years back. You know, the first instance that Sony was aware that something was wrong was one morning people started coming into the office and all their desktops were encrypted. But the threat actors have been in that environment stealing data for months. All right, so this leads us into MDR, Managed Detection and Response, which is one of the ways that you can stop these attackers getting into your business. Gavin, can you explain to us what MDR is? So MDR is a cybersecurity service. It's human-led, using tools and technologies to provide a a detection response service in uh, real time for organisations. Gartner produced a, uh, an MDR buyer's guide. This buyer's guide has you know, information around the qualities, the features, the attributes of what you should be looking for in an MDR service, particularly things like 24-7 availability, human-led focus capabilities to be able to analyze and understand what's happening in the organization, being able to relate that back to the business requirements and the capabilities of the organization. Further to Gavin's point, an MDR service should be a real augmentation of the internal security team. So when onboarding an MDR service, whichever one it happens to be, we think the Rapid7 and Missing Link MDR service is pretty good, but there really needs to be a careful consideration from onboarding through to that first six months of hypercare where your MDR provider starts to feel like part of your security team. And they're going to do that by getting an understanding of your business, what services it provides, the crown jewels of the business, org charts, network diagrams, collateral of that nature. So that means that they can fine tune their alerting and really focus on the detections that are real rather than the false positives. To get an MDR service, how big does my business need to be? At The Missing Link, we have a security operations centre that's manned 24 by 7 here in Sydney in Artarman. I think one of our smallest MDR clients is 50 staff and our largest is over 10,000 staff. Just to jump in on Pete's comment there, the scale of the business is actually really 
crucial from the MDR provider point of view. And the reality is that organizations of all sizes are going to need 24 by 7 coverage of their security assets. But a small organization is going to find it incredibly difficult, not to mention cost prohibitive, to build their own 24 by 7 operation. Literally just can't find the people to staff it, let alone setting up the technology. So using an MDR service provider such as the Missing Link uh, really is going to help those organizations get those big bank quality level security operations that otherwise would be totally outside of their reach. And so when we talk about the human-led intelligence, can you tell us how that works with an MDR? MDR isn't just your frontline SOC teams. It's a whole piece of research and capability behind that. So you've got detection and response researchers, you've got threat intelligence capabilities and personnel. All of the inputs coming from those are building out the detection rules in the actual seam itself or the SOC itself. And then that's used by those analysts to then go through their stages of, you know, looking at an incident, triaging it, deciding how it's going to be handled, what type of additional information needs to be gathered to help them make a decision, you know, is this benign or is it malicious or is there next levels of stages to investigate as part of that and then process that investigation accordingly. So what you're saying is you're going in and you're getting the characteristics, you're getting the intelligence from within that organisation so you can build it specifically for that company. Correct. So we want to go and grab all of the logs which they have in their environment, like their Active Directory security logs. We want process start information coming from the Windows, Mac, Linux machines running in that organization. We want the firewall logs. We also want to know identity-wise, you know, who's who in the organization, so the LDAP directory structure, so that we understand uh, who is who in the organization, what are user accounts, what are service accounts. And then we want to be able to put in other types of event sources or third-party alerts, for example, like our cloud security logs or our external antivirus defender logs, for example, and bring all of these into the environment because that provides a lot of information around what that user's activity is, what the footprint is and how that touches into the rest of the organization and works from there. That's a really good final point by Gav. An MDR service isn't something that you do that onboarding and then you set and forget. Oftentimes, these uh, MDR analysts, as uh, Richard said, are across a lot of different clients and therefore they see a lot of different malicious actors out there and they, they get exposure to different environments. So they're basically embarking on a continuous improvement program with the client for that extended period of time. So while they'll set up, get organization context under that hyper care, then they move into BAU monitoring where they detect, they respond, they go through the motions, but then they're always accruing knowledge, accruing skills that then they pass back to the team. So that final point by Gav was he wants to onboard more logs, new logs, make recommendations so they can enhance not only the platform, but their processes, their incident response playbooks. So a really important point is while the MDR service onboarding is getting set up, is understanding the business, then what happens after about six months is it turns around and becomes a proactive service where you enhance the security tooling of the organization, not just the same that the analysts might be using. Yeah, correct. You know, the technology stack evolves and changes to meet the business requirements of the organization. The security side of the organization needs to then pivot and respond to new event sources that we have in the organization, new threats or risks, which are inherent with the the new services, which they might be bringing up as well, and keep in tune with that as an organization. Yeah, I just want to jump in and touch on the AI component for a second, because it's a real soapbox topic of mine. We don't really have AI, like we're not there. We don't have artificial intelligence. What we do have is machine learning. 
And machine learning can learn to do specific things very, very well. And, and one of those things is identifying anomalous patterns within huge amounts of log data. And it's exceptionally good at that and is, is a great benefit. But that's not to downplay, as we we're saying, the human element, because it's people that are going to train the computer what to do. And they're the ones that are coming up with new detections, teaching the back end how to recognize those. And then totally outside IT realm is the business analysts, back to Gavin's earlier point, that are working with the end user to understand their business processes, help them develop incident response plans, potentially help them execute those incident response plans if things go terribly wrong. And the human element there cannot be understated. You know, a, a computer can't come in and understand your business. And Richard, can you tell us about the incident response capabilities of an MDR? How would that normally work if something happened within the organisation? That really does vary depending on the provider. The way we like to approach that is we will pivot immediately from business as usual being in a detection mode, looking at data and and looking for those anomalies. As soon as anomaly is detected, we'll immediately pivot into an incident response mode where we'll start collecting forensic data, wheeling the experts that we need to really understand what has happened to cause the particular incident. Uh, I won't say breach, it may not even be a breach at this point, but what's happened to cause that anomalous uh, activity, be able to isolate it. Automation is a really key thing here. Whilst we talk about the importance of people, the importance of automation is also critical because if you look at the way organizations are being attacked, those attacks are largely scripted and automated. So if you're relying on somebody's pager going off, that shows my age, um, getting an email or a text message, saying something bad has happened and somebody's got to read that and decide what action to take, it's too late. The environment's compromised by that point. So it's really critical that you are able to, as much as possible, automate that response. And whilst that automation is kicking things off and that may be saying, okay, that endpoint looks like it's infected, let's isolate that from the network. And then while that automation's going on, we've then got alerts going out to the humans who will actually be be driving that human-led incident response. And is that the same as a disaster recovery or is this just the elimination of a threat or... Uh, assessing a breach or something like that? It's disaster recovery is part of the incident response. So the incident response is typically quite a broad thing. You've got the technical aspects of finding out where the hole was and plugging the hole, removing malware from machines, all of that kind of thing, uh, through to communications. What's the messaging that goes out to the media? What do you say? Who says it? Through to my business is impacted. How do I get it back and how do I keep the business operating whilst we're in the middle of this crisis. So that recovery process, disaster recovery, should form a very key part of the overall incident response planning. Exactly. And when selecting an MDR provider, knowing the level of communication that they're going to have with your team, I mentioned before that that augmentation of the security team is really important when we get down to the, the worst part of it, which is the response part. Detection, threat hunting, that's all great to have in an environment, but what you want at the end of the day is if something goes wrong, there's a team there to assist you, get you out of that hole. And being able to open up an incident bridge, being on first name terms with your MDR analysts that are essentially part of your security team is so important for you to be able to effectively close that off. Okay, so one of the key aspects of having a proper MDR is being able to predict or foresee these potential cyber incidents before they happen. Can you talk to us about how threat intelligence works? It's important to step back a little bit when you're looking at threat intelligence as well and realize there are multiple use cases. This does get a little bit muddied in the market at the moment because we have analyst reports coming out saying you should have threat intelligence and we have uh, certification standards such as ISO 27001. There was an update last year that said you should have threat intelligence, but they don't really define why or, or what you should be getting out of your threat intelligence program. And that's 
great that they're raising awareness because I'm a threat intel guy, but also doesn't really help because it leaves everyone very confused. So in this particular scenario, you're really talking about what we refer to as technical intelligence. This tends to be quite generic in that it's, it's the same for everyone because you're looking at really getting information on things that we know to be malicious. So it could be you know, an IP address or the URL of a server out on the internet that's known to be hosting a malware command and control server. And the way that would work in practice is you know, when you see data from, say, your firewall logging where machines on your network are visiting, if that IP address that you know is running a command and control server appears, then it's a pretty good bet. You've got something in your environment communicating with that, and that's a sign of bad things. So your MDR service should absolutely, if you're feeding your firewall logs into your MDR service, it should be jumping up and down and yelling and screaming at you at that point saying, hey, there is malicious traffic originating from your environment. Here is something you need to take care of. Um, and then if you wanted to automate that response, you could tell your firewall to block the traffic and take it from there. Yeah, correct. I mean, we can go and grab those threat feeds and they're quite often integrated as part of a, a SIEM or an MDR solution from that point of view. So those indicators are compromised. The URLs, the IP addresses, the hashes are all going to be fed into into the actual platform itself. And when we detect those particular addresses or those indicators being used on things like your DNS servers or the DNS requests happening in the organization or the, the firewall logs coming from the firewalls, for example, they're going to throw alerts automatically in the platform for an analyst to then go and look at further and then kick off some automation to go and update URL filtering objects either in the firewall or in the CASB service, for example, the cloud web service, and modify those particular dynamic objects in the environment. And with Technical Threat Intel, Gav Richard, you've both mentioned a few different technologies such as a WAF, a CASB, and a SIEM. Are these prerequisites for having a threat intel feed? Is there a certain thing you look for in the environment, whether it be tool set, people or process or even size that an organization needs to have before they can employ a threat intel feed? Really good question. Um, size, absolutely not. Like It's the same data is relevant to everyone. And again, a lot of these attacks are automated. So the same indicators are going to be relevant to everyone. Really obvious example for those that think about it is if you look at uh, the technical indicator of a file hash, right? A, a hash of a malicious file is always going to be the same hash. So that's something that you can use endpoints to to look at and say, don't have that in my environment. In terms of tooling and things, it's technical intelligence really is going to rely on something that will make use of it. It's no good saying, hey team, here's a feed of malicious IP addresses and, and domain names, go do something with that. Yeah, it, it's totally not feasible to do this at scale, right? So if you're looking at proxy logs, firewall logs, there's no way a human is going to be able to sit there and trawl through those vast amounts of data and come up with anything meaningful in real time. So having the, that log data being aggregated somewhere into you know, a SIEM platform or sent into an MDR service, that type of thing, really is a prerequisite. I'll, I'll then get on, on my other soapbox and talk about SIEM platforms. If your SIEM platform isn't applying the intelligence and doing analytics, it's not living up to the acronym. It's not identifying anything. It's just storing your logs. So storing your logs is great, but then you pull the intelligence in and then you can start looking for those signs within that data. Yeah, and that's those detection rules that you're wanting experts to be behind to essentially water, feed, curate, maintain, and look after those uh, those detection rules so that you're always being kept ahead of what's happening inside the organization from that point of view and what we're seeing happen at scale across many different customers. You were talking about technical threat intelligence, which alludes 
to the fact that there's another type of threat intelligence. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So there are more types of intelligence. So the technical intel, as mentioned, you know, super valid in the right hands. But if you don't have the right setup, probably actually not massively useful to you. Things that are useful across a broader swathe of the enterprise, I guess, is what we call tailored external intelligence. And this really is about understanding what it is from a digital footprint perspective that makes up you to the outside world. That could be technical things like domain names or IP addresses that you have services running on. It could be uh, brand-related things such as company names, brand names, could even be the names of your VIPs and their personal email addresses. And then looking for anything out there across the internet, and particularly in the shady parts of the internet that people don't often browse, looking for anything that is showing signs of risk to those things. And that could be usernames and passwords belonging to the organization. It could be credit card details of your VIPs. could be people standing up lookalike domain names and then lookalike websites that are trying to trick your employees or your customers into divulging personal information. And and some examples of how that works in the real world. So retail is an obvious example. I'm sure we've all seen advertisements for, hey, come and buy this fashion stuff at 80% off. And people will go to a website that looks like a legitimate retailer, but is not a legitimate retailer. And the outcome of that is the legitimate retailer in a week or two time will receive an abusive phone call or email from one of their customers saying, where is my stuff? I ordered this stuff and not only did you overcharge my credit card by several thousand dollars, my stuff hasn't arrived. Can we talk about attack surface management for a moment? How does threat intelligence work in with that? Attack surface management is a fun one. It's It was coined recently by one of the analyst companies and every vendor on the planet, I think, is jumping on the bandwagon and, and relabeling something they already have as, oh, this is our new shiny attack surface management tool. Many are taking a very technical approach to that as well. So they are looking at, again, looking at your external assets from a tech standpoint, right? So what have I got in the cloud that's potentially at risk? What is an attack path into my server? And that's valid, absolutely valid, but it is really only telling part of the story. And I think to completely look at your external attack surface, you need to look at your users, your internal tooling that may be vulnerable to attacks. Really, again, any touch point that your company has with the outside world and tailored intelligence can help with that because again it's looking at signs of risk to your organization your people your tooling your processes and surfacing that to you hopefully early before those attacks actually become realized and let's talk about the collaboration side of things threat intelligence fosters collaboration between customers security vendors industry peers creating a community driven approach Tell us about how that community is created. How do you get that going? Collaboration is key. Um, Some industries are much more advanced down this path than others. And financial services is a really good example. If you look at all the banking organizations from the big four down to the little micro banks, yes, they all compete, but they also all collaborate. Their SOC teams talk. They share data about what attacks look like, what indicators they're seeing. And the way this is often done across industries is through a thing called an ISAC which is an information sharing organization. So there's a financial services ISAC, there's a healthcare ISAC, there's an aviation ISAC. And so people in those industries will contribute to that pool of data as well as drawing from that pool of data to help safeguard themselves. And what about compliance and regulation? How does threat intelligence work with that? It's it's a double-edged sword. 
there are new regulations coming out. So there was some amendments from APRA, for example, around threat intelligence requirements. And this is great because threat intelligence can really help people to secure their environment and, and stay ahead of attacks. It is a little bit of a double-edged sword in that whilst also raising awareness, the problem when something becomes a compliance issue is it drives tick box uh, implementation where somebody isn't necessarily looking at what's the positive outcome I get. You know, I have to do a thing. What's the best way I can do that thing and get a really positive outcome for my organization? Instead, they look at it from a financial point of view and it's like, oh, I have to do this thing. What's the cheapest way I can do this thing and tick the box on my compliance list? We saw this with things like PCI DSS, right, where there'd be a whole bunch of retailers out there saying, yeah, we're PCI compliant, and yet your credit card data is for sale on the dark web because they got breached. So compliance doesn't necessarily mean security. So when done properly, it can absolutely aid with that, but it's it's a real catch-22. And Rapid7 has a product called Threat Command, and it's all about threat intelligence. So tell us about that. Back to my comment earlier about understanding the digital footprint of an organization. That's exactly what Threat Command does. So within the Threat Command platform, we will uh, we give you the opportunity to basically create a list of the different assets. Again, categorized by IP address, domain name, people. If you're in finance, the, the bank identification numbers are your credit card numbers under, for example. Uh, we catalog all of these assets into the platform and then the platform will go off and look for instances of risk to those assets. Uh, we do a lot of that through automated collection. So we've got essentially uh, spiders that are out crawling underground forums and marketplaces and caching all of that data and looking for information. And we also have a team of human analysts, just like MDR in the threat intel world. People are very, very important as well. There are things computers do well, other things need people. Uh, so we have human analysts that are maintaining criminal personas in underground forums, for example, to get access to that data so we can look for risk to your organization. So then when we find that risk, we bubble that up as proactive alerts to the organization to say, we've detected this risk. What would you like to do about it? In many cases, we can then offer remediation services to help remove that risk. And does Rapid7 Threat Command only work with the Rapid7 MDR or does it work with similar technology? Really good question, Matt. Um, no, it could work with basically any technology. It's it's quite agnostic. It does integrate very nicely into the Rapid7 portfolio, but you don't need to be a Rapid7 customer to get value out of Threat Command. We can integrate with many different vendors, firewalls, endpoint protection systems, different seams. Uh, you know, there, there's a, a list of, of available integrations directly from the platform, uh, as well as an open API if people want to call on that, or integrations into security orchestration tooling. And again, we can use our security orchestration tooling, Insight Connect, but we quite happily work with with other solutions as well. You know, we're certainly not going to ask you to throw away your existing investment in security technology. Uh, our approach has always been that we will work with whatever you have and interoperate with that. Our objective is not to displace what you have, but to augment and make it more efficient. So as part of our managed detection and response strategy, we have our threat intelligence capabilities, but we also need vulnerability management. What is that? This is the, the process of being able to identify vulnerabilities in our organization, then decide you know how to remediate those, how to get it into the hands of the responders or the remediators to get that patching work done and get the systems back into a, a, a more secure state by resolving the vulnerabilities on those endpoints or on those systems. And what's the difference between vulnerability management and vulnerability assessment? It's a longer process. There's more steps inside that. So vulnerability assessment is really just, you know, here's a PDF or here's a CSV report of what the vulnerabilities are identified. 
vulnerability management is taking that another few steps further. It's integrating it with ticketing system. It's identifying what the remediation works are that need to be done to get those vulnerabilities resolved and removed from the systems. It's um, packaging along with the, the information to help the resolver understand what they need to do to get that vulnerability resolved. You know, that could be install a patch or it could be configuration changes on a particular endpoint to resolve weak passwords or weak configurations from a configuration perspective. And I read there is a five-step process, and it starts with discovery and inventory. Yeah, so we want to know what these systems are in the environment that we're trying to assess. We want to make sure that the scope is right and that we're not excluding things which should be assessed. You know, quite often we're too focused around just the endpoint, but we're also talking about, you know, switches, firewalls, routers, other networking devices in the environment, and that's all part of our attack landscape from what's available to a malicious insider or an attacker trying to take advantage of vulnerabilities. And vulnerability assessment it could be running scans. You know, we could have scan engines on the environment, which will essentially use network credentials or uh, ICMP or ping or NMAP requests across the network to be able to do assessments. That also could be an endpoint agent deployed onto that endpoint as well. So we're getting near real-time assessment of what the vulnerability posture or the data coming back from that endpoint shows so that we can then match that up and provide intelligence around what vulnerabilities exist on that platform. All right, step three of the five-part plan is prioritisation. So we want to be able to relate it back to risk in the organisation. There's no point being focused on all the high-priority uh, vulnerabilities from a vulnerability perspective. We want to know what are our critical assets in the organization. We want to be able to look after the critical assets first of highest priority so that we can focus around what is a real risk, you know, how easy it is to exploit this particular vulnerability. Is there malware available for that particular vulnerability? Does it require you know, script kitty capabilities or do we need to have some you know, real level of expertise to be able to take advantage of that particular exploit on that particular endpoint? So prioritization, very important. We want to bring it back to risk for the organization and relate that risk in terms of you know, what we choose to remediate and when and how. And step four, you know, we need to look at the remediation side. How do we get this information into the hands of the remediator or the resolver groups to decide how this remediation work is going to be done? How does that fit into change control and getting that through and looked after as quickly as possible so that we can close off the particular risk associated with those vulnerabilities? So that could be old staff producing CSV or PDF reports. That's hard work to deal with. So we want to get that in the hands of, say, a, a ticketing solution, whether that be JIRA or ServiceNow or Freshworks or what other type of ticketing solution the organisation is using because that way it's tracked. We can see how it's progressing. We can see any bottlenecks to getting that remediation work done or it could be integrated into patch management tools like Avanti, for example, so that we're getting the dependencies looked after around that remediation work as well and, uh, and getting the best outcome for getting those vulnerabilities resolved. And then lastly, step five, we need to do that ongoing monitoring. We need to understand that vulnerability assessment isn't a one-off particular step. We want to make a process out of it, and that involves coming back and continually reassessing based on a schedule, based on agents continually reporting data into the vulnerability management platform so that we can continue those remediation works and make sure we're on top of those high-risk vulnerabilities for the organisation. And Rapid7 has a product called Insight VM. And with that, you can automatically run a scan right across the business for emerging vulnerabilities. Is that how it works? Is that a scan that's built into the software? 
Yeah, so Insight VM is a is a hybrid SaaS solution. We have a security console and we have the Insight platform as another component of Insight VM. We'll be running scans across the environment using the scan engines and we can also have the agent software deployed as part of that solution. And we can also take that one step further as well. Rapid Seven Research, you know, our Heisenberg and our Sonar projects, we can then tie that data together so that we can bring a query into your Insight VM environment and query your external IP addresses, et cetera. So you can get visibility around what your external side looks like as well and be able to do scans externally to the organization as well as internally. Just to finish off on vulnerability management, in terms of the overall cybersecurity of my company, how important would you rate that? That's already been pointed out in you know, ASD's essential eight. You know, vulnerability management's an extremely important component. If you've got exploitable systems and they're reachable, they can be breachable, and they'll be then essentially be the the feed for the hacker to essentially live off the land inside your organisation. Yeah, it's spot on, Gavin. If you think back to my earlier comments about attacks broadly based being opportunistic or targeted. Targeted attacks, right? Someone's after you. They're going to find a way in. The opportunistic attacks, if you have a robust vulnerability management program and you're actually executing on it and fixing the vulnerabilities and have that, that five step process and the ongoing monitoring and all the rest of it, somebody's going to come along. They're going to knock on your door. They're going to find the door is locked solid and they can't get in and they're going to move on to the next target because those vulnerabilities that they may have leveraged to get that foothold in simply don't exist in your environment. For a hacker as well, you know, time is money. You don't want to spend time working on something which is too hard. Too hard to work here, let's find something with, with easier opportunity and easier methods of getting access, easier ways to stay undetected inside the organisation. Similar to MDR that we talked about earlier, vulnerability management tools like Insight VM can be managed by your SOC as well. So if you have a security operations centre that's managed, such as the Missing Link SOC in Sydney, we can manage not only the SIEM component, the detection response remediate component, but also the VM tool, the Insight VM. And where organisations find that really helpful is in the initial setup and deployment of it. If you're deploying a vulnerability management tool to a large scale of assets, when you run those discovery scans, a lot of the time you're going to find assets that you might have thought were decommissioned or not even part of your network. We call these rogue assets. So it's really helpful to have a SOC team able to identify, cull this, and then set up the scan so they're running properly. Um, There's no failures in the scan. There's no false positives. And then taking that day-to-day scanning and management and curating of the data off your internal team's hands as well. So we find that a lot of companies, while they run it internally, some also choose to use the SOC to, to run it as well. So we've got our managed detection response, we've got our threat intelligence, we've got our vulnerability management. All of this comes with different types of software, some of it rapid, seven, we've talked about that. But then there's this other element on top of all this as well. It's not just about having the software, it's about training your team up. Certainly. The three components that we've touched on today all make up security operations. And a security operations analyst is not going to be in one of these tools at all times. They'll usually be across all three. While there is specialization, they certainly need to know how the other two work in order to make their responses more holistic and their knowledge more holistic. So you want to keep the team trained in the technology that you've invested in. So that's working with the vendor to make sure that um, as there are updates, there's also training and, and knowledge transfer videos and, and workshops, but also allow your team and allow your security analysts to take time out to upskill themselves as certifications on that process and governance side. It's great if you've got all the bells and whistles, but if there's no plans around them, often their ability is mitigated. 
Yeah, I think that's important too because we can train them from the organisational, the the enterprise's perspective in terms of what's important from our security requirements, but relating that back to how that improves that individual's own security, how they treat their email and how they treat their social uh, media at home as well is all part of a, a well-rounded 360 approach to enhancing the cyber skills of the, of the organisation because then it relates back to their own personal lives as well. All right, absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much for your expert advice today from Rapid7, Richard Stocks and Gavin Ray. Thanks, pleasure to be here. Thanks, Matt, and thanks, uh, Pete. It's been uh, a good chat and a good good session altogether. And from The Missing Link, Pete Livingston, thanks very much for your time today. Very kind words, Matt. It's been a pleasure. And if you'd like to speak to our experts and find out more about MDR, threat intelligence or vulnerability management, you can reach out to The Missing Link via their website themissinglink.com.au. They have a dedicated cyber team that are world leaders in tailoring the very latest security solutions for your business. You can also find a whole library of podcasts from The Missing Link on their website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Check It Out series covers everything from cyber security to cloud services and the latest on AI and chat GPT. We'd also love for you to follow us and share us. I'm Matt Summerall on behalf of The Missing Link Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Camaragal people of the Garangai tribe of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging.